You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Welcome to Matthew, uh, not Matthew, Mark chapter 6, and how many of you have been in one of those reports where, like a mission trip report, your church sends a mission team off, they come back and they give a report, and they talk about all the cool things they did, all the people that they met, all the uh, uh, houses that they built, or orphans that they met, and that's wonderful, that's great. However, when Mark tells about the mission trip that Jesus sends his disciples on, he decides that now's a good opportunity to tell perhaps one of the most gruesome stories in the scriptures. And it's a sobering reality that while there's this romance about going out and telling people about Jesus, uh, there are enemies out there. And we get a very fascinating story uh, about John the Baptist and the conflict that he has. So as he represents whoa, represents the kingdom of God, um, uh, this is a, a good opportunity here for to talk about some of the adversity that comes his way. And so... Mark chapter 6, verse 14 uh, through verse 29. So if you want to follow along with me. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, talking about Jesus sending his disciples off into the region to tell of his name, kind of the first mission trip, the, the first commissioning. So King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and he and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And he came in, she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry for because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Whoa. All right, so this is quite the story. If this were, we don't see this story made into a movie very much because it would have a pretty extreme rating for violence, sexual content, language, drunkenness, and we have what we've talked about before, this Mark and Sandwich, where Mark likes to start a story, interrupt it, and then resume the story. And so we're in the meat of this sandwich where Jesus has faced some opposition in his hometown. He sent his disciples off into the teeth of that opposition, and then he pauses. They're not going to come back and give their report on their mission trip until Mark chapter 6, verse 30. 
And so here, Mark decides to insert the story about John the Baptist and what happened to him. See, he had mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 14, that after John the Baptist had recognized Jesus, baptized him, sent him off on his ministry, he said, now when John was arrested, and then he immediately moves John off the scene, off center stage, moves him off, and then the story follows Jesus, and now he's coming back around to tell us what happened to John. So that's the title of our message. Whatever happened to John? This great, important messenger, this, this, uh, this prophesied, promised prophet that would be the forerunner of the Messiah. He's done his job. Jesus is off and rolling. The kingdom is, has, uh, is beginning to unfold through Jesus' teaching and ministry. And so whatever happened to John? Well, Mark decides this is the time to tell what happens to God's promised messengers. And it's not a pretty story. You would think that someone like John with tremendous character, uh, tremendous uh, promises, a great ministry, that he would just rise and rise and rise in prominence. But instead, his ministry is one that's tough. And he introduces Jesus, and then he spends basically the rest of his life in jail for speaking the truth, and then he ends up being put to death. And so what I want to do um, today is basically answer four questions. Here's the four questions. You ready? Who is King Herod? I'd love to take you on a little bit of a history tour and give you just a sense of who King Herod is. Second, who is John the Baptist? I just want to remind you of who he is, why he's important. Every single one of the gospel writers starts with the ministry of John the Baptist. So he is essential. His ministry and the fulfillment of prophecy that he brings is essential to Jesus's, um, to Jesus's ministry and to the message of the gospel. Why is he dead? We just read about why that is, but we'll unpack that together. And then what's the point of this story? Why? Why does Mark think that we need to know this story? And so that's what we're going to try to tackle today. So question number one, who is King Herod? So this can get really confusing when you're reading your Bible because there are six Herods in the Bible. Between uh, the Gospels and Acts, we have six different Herods. And so this is very complicated. The Herod that we're talking about today is called Herod Antipas. But in order to understand Herod Antipas, we need to understand his father, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was appointed by Mark Antony to rule the region of Judea. So he's like a governor, and he was so full of himself. um, Well, in a sense, Herod's father had converted to Judaism, had helped the Romans kind of take possession of the area, and as a thank you, Herod Herod gets this governorship over the region of of Israel, over the region of Palestine there. He's an Edomite. He's not ethnically a Jewish person, but his father apparently converted to Judaism. Perhaps that's politically a good idea to go ahead and convert to the to the religion of the people you're going to be ruling. And it was Herod who decided to give himself the title, The Great. (laughs) Herod the Great, I shall be Herod the Great, which speaks a little bit to his, his, uh, his pride. So he ruled, he was born in 73 BC, he ruled Judea from 37 BC to 4 BC. And he is known as the Great Builder. I think we have some pictures here. This is the Herod, you can go back just a second. He's the Herod of the Jesus story. The one who the wise men come to, the one who wants to kill all the babies, this is Herod the Great. Okay, so this is Herod Antipas, this is our Herod's father. But let's talk about Herod the Great just a little bit, just because he's ruling this whole area, he's ruling Judea, he calls himself a king, calls himself the Great, and one of the things that he's known for is his huge, massive building projects. And so this is, let me just show you a few of his massive building projects. Um, he actually built a mountain palace called Herodi, Herodium. If you've been there, he basically built a mountain to put his own palace on there. Apparently, he's buried there. Um, And so you can still go there today and see the ruins of just he essentially built a mountain for himself. 
Um, he also, overlooking the sea of um, the Dead Sea, is Masada. He built a, a mountain uh, palace right there. Um, there's all kinds of cool history there. Some of you have been there. Like, that's a really crazy place to go. Uh, he also built his own, like, port city, Caesarea Maritima. Uh, just a beautiful city. The ruins there are still really impressive. And uh, that little arrow points to the little palace that he had kind of on the outskirts of there. But built this port city basically just because he could. And then perhaps what he's most known for, especially among the Jews, is he, he took the Jewish temple that was kind of, kind of unimpressive and he just made it a massive complex. It's huge, 35 acres of the, and so this curried some favor with the Israelites. Look, I'm one of you. I'm building up your holy place. Uh, but Herod, Herod was really about his own glory. So that begins to create this really unique and challenging relationship where Herod is sort of trying to prop himself up as the hero of the Jewish people. Look at all of these great things that I've done for you. Look at how great I've made your worship space. I've donated so much for this. And so the Pharisees, the Herodians, the religious leaders have this complicated relationship because, man, he has given us cool stuff. He's donated to our church quite a bit, but he also is full of himself. He doesn't really follow the one true God. And so when you see the Pharisees getting really like nervous about Jesus's Messiah claims and then all of this stuff is because they don't want all of this good stuff to go away. So that's Herod the Great. This is the one that you can read about in Matthew chapter 2, Luke 1 and 2. This is the Herod of the Christmas story. So when Herod dies in 4 BC, well, here, let me, let, me, let me just say a little bit more about Herod the Great. He's deeply insecure and he's very paranoid. He acquired and deposed somewhere around, he had about 10 wives. And he would, he would acquire them and then he would get really paranoid about them. And, and some of his heirs, he killed some of his own sons because he was afraid they were going to usurp him. He's just a deeply insecure guy, which speaks to why he has all the babies in Bethlehem killed, right? Like he is just paranoid and his power is always feeling threatened um, one historical uh, website that I found said this he altered his will three different times and disinherited and killed his firstborn son Antipater the slaying and shortly before his death of the infants of Bethlehem was wholly consistent with the disarray of which he had fallen so this was entirely consistent with his character to try to remove rivals to his kingdom and his power after an unsuccessful attempt at suicide Herod died his final testament provided that, uh, subject to Augustus' sanction, the Caesar, his realm would be divided among his four sons called the Tetrarchy. So Tetra, four, divided up among his four sons. Actually, only three of them actually ruled. And one of them is Herod Antipas, which is the Herod we're talking about here. Okay, So you just need to know that in the background, that this Herodian dynasty from which all of these Herods come down, they are deeply insecure. <laughs> they are trying to manage this Jewish state. And, uh, and, and they're, just, uh, they're just kind of a mess. And so Herod Antipas, which is the Herod of our story here, is his son. And he is born in BC, 21 BC. And then around 39 AD, after Jesus, after, after, uh, Jesus dies and rises again, he's deposed uh, by Caligula. And he goes off into exile. We don't know much about him. Uh, but he inherited a portion of his father's realm. So, so all of this, all of this colored area was ruled by Herod the Great. And then it was broken up into this tetrarchy, which actually ended up just being three of his sons that then began to rule. Herod Archelaus ruled the orange part. Uh, Herod Philip uh, uh, ruled the green. And then Herod Antipas, which is the Herod that we're talking about, ruled Galilee and then uh, on the east side of the Jordan River. Okay, 
So they're essentially like sub-governors, but they love to take on the title of king, King Herod. And, uh, and so this is, this is who they are. Um, Mark won't say much more about Herod from here on out. Matthew does a little bit. Luke says the most about Herod. And Herod actually has this odd curiosity, not just with John the Baptist, which we'll read about here in just a second, that he has this mixed feeling. John the Baptist calls him out on stuff. He doesn't like that. His, his mistress really, really doesn't like that. But he also loves hearing John. And so you see this conscience sort of battle inside Herod Antipas. And he also has a curiosity about Jesus. So he's hearing about Jesus now through this mission trip. And here's what Luke says about him. Here's just some interesting things about Herod Antipas that we learn um, from the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, it talks about uh, the 12 were with him and also some women. So there were some women that would follow Jesus that were part of his discipleship group. Uh, one of them was Joanna, the wife of Cudza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So the household manager for this Herod, his wife was a follower of Jesus and actually was using some of Herod's money through his household manager to support Jesus' ministry. So it's just sort of fascinating that he's kind of got this Jesus follower like actually in his household. Um, when uh, the Pharisees come to Jesus in Luke chapter 13, the Pharisees say, hey, Herod is trying to kill you. And Jesus essentially blows it off and calls Herod. He says, go and tell that fox all of the things that I do. And it's like he's, like, he's basically Jesus uses almost like a profanity. There. This is, Herod is like a female dog. That's kind of the term here. He's just like Jesus does not speak well of Herod, but Herod also has this. Um, and so we just have an interesting uh, dynamic between Herod and Jesus in Luke chapter 13, that Herod is sort of intrigued by him but threatened by him, and Jesus does not, is not a fan of Herod and the way he rules at all. And in Luke chapter 23, I'll read this, Luke 23, 6 through 12. This is during the crucifixion, the trials before the crucifixion. Pilate heard and asked whether this man, meaning Jesus, was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he's part of the yellow, he's from, he's from Galilee, Pilate's trying to pass the buck on this killing Jesus thing. And so he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had longed to see him, long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done for him. Do, do a trick for me, Mr. Magician. I've been wanting to see you. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer, and the chief priests and scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, Herod did this, he sent him back to Pilate, sort of mocking him and going, I don't want anything to do with this guy. Send him back to Pilate. Pilate, this is your deal, not mine. Arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. Uh, for before this, had they had been at enmity with each other. So they had some, some struggles with them, but their common problem of Jesus <laughs> started a new friendship between Pilate and Herod. So just a little background on Herod. Luke gives us more detail there. Here's what we know about Herod Antipas, is that he divorced his Nabataean wife. Nabataeans, that's like Petra. Do you know the, the ruins of Petra? That's the Nabataeans. And so he had married uh, a Nabataean woman in order to have good relations with that neighboring country. He divorces her and marries Herodias. That's the Herodias we have in our story today, who was once the wife of his half-brother, Philip. This marriage offended his former father-in-law and alienated the Jewish subjects because it's just not kosher 
let's let's say it's not kosher for you to m- steal your brother's wife like just not the jewish people jewish law is not a big fan of that let me show you this thing this thing is crazy all right so this chart there's herod the great okay he tried to kill jesus as a baby all right so that's and then he has a bunch of wives that we don't know a ton about we know some of their names he has one wife uh and his firstborn son he kills but that son has a daughter named herodias that Herodias marries another one, essentially her half-brother, Herod Philip, Herod the Great's son by another uh, wife. And then Herod Antipas steals essentially his half-sister slash brother's wife, sister-in-law, and marries her. And that's where John the Baptist goes, whoa, 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 whoa. He blows the whistle, calls foul, right? Like, you can't do that. <laughs> Marrying your half-sister slash sister-in-law uh, that's not great. Well, actually, it would be his niece, I guess. It would be his brother's daughter, who's also married. In, okay, so this is the Herodian. This is the Herodian situation. This is their family, and John, being a prophet of the Lord, says, "Hey, this is not right. This is not the way you call yourself a Jewish person. You're trying to do so much for the Jewish people, but you're all about yourself here." So he calls out Herod Antipas for this, and Herodias is furious. She hates John the Baptist. And Herod has this mixed feeling about him. Like his father, he's deeply paranoid. He's a deeply paranoid man. He does have a conscience. He wants to hear the word of God from John, yet he also wants to give himself over to his desires, and he cares a lot about what other people think. He cares about his reputation. So he's stuck between the world and the kingdom of God. He wants what he wants, but then he also has some sense of respect for John. And so he loves listening to John's sermons, but he has no interest in actually obeying them. So that's who the Herod is here. Some of the other Herods you'll see um, then play a big role in the book of Acts. One of them helps uh, imprisons Peter. One kills James. Uh, Part of this Herodian dynasty is some of the people that Paul runs into. Um, And then actually Herodias' daughter by Philip, which would be Herod's niece slash stepdaughter slash cousin i don't know is is the one who will do the dancing that will lead to the do you see do you see this and john the baptist goes oh man we've got this is not good this is an ungodly set of relationships here all right so that's who herod is okay see the family that he comes from see the craziness that he's a part of and here we are who is John the Baptist? If you go back to Mark chapter 1, that's our second question. So this is, this is who Herod is. That was a lot, but hopefully somewhat interesting. And maybe you'll have some Googling. Maybe some of you are Googling right now some of this. But go to Mark chapter 1 for just a second, because our second question I want to answer then, who then is John the Baptist? Okay, so this is who Herod the Great is. Who is John the Baptist? Let's go back in Mark. Mark introduces Jesus, or not Jesus, John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So this is all that Mark has said about John the Baptist. He just leaves it here. Now he's picking up the story. But let's remind ourselves of what he said about John, John the Baptist. Mark 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so John appeared. He's the fulfillment of of that prophecy that God would send a prophet like Elijah to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. So John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The kingdom, Israel needs to be prepared for its king that's coming. 
And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. This sounds exactly like Elijah in the Old Testament. He is, he is the fulfillment of this Elijah that would come. He even looks like him. He dresses like him. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus from Nazareth came, came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. This is Jesus. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee and at that point, the story resumes. And so we're getting the resuming of that story of what happened. John got arrested. What happened to him? And we see that in Mark, he is the promised forerunner of Jesus. This is, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which is 700 years before Jesus. There's a prophecy that says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So there will be one who comes, who will make way this is 700 years promised that there would be a forerunner to the messiah this is also quoting malachi chapter 3 verse 1 behold i send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me the lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant to whom you delight behold he is coming says the lord of hosts now we just he uh noah just read part of john's birth story john is born to zachariah who works in the temple and an angel appears to Zechariah, he's an old man, he and his wife have never been able to have kids, and an angel appears to him and says, you're going to have a child. And Zechariah kind of laughs at that, going, you, you don't really know how, you know, it's just beyond the time of us having kids. And so the angel strikes him mute, he ends up, he and Elizabeth miraculously do get pregnant, and, uh, and then we just have this, he, he is a miraculous birth. It's not a virgin birth like Jesus, but it is a miraculous birth, and it's just a few months before Jesus. Because Mary herself is going to go with Elizabeth, go see Elizabeth when she finds that she is uh, pregnant with the Christ child. And John the Baptist, in her belly, leaps for joy. Like, <laughs> he responds to the Christ child. And uh, what we find is that Mary, uh, Elizabeth, which is John the Baptist's mother, is Mary's mother's sister. Okay, Mary's mother's sister. So Elizabeth is essentially Mary's aunt which makes Jesus and John first cousins once removed, right? Is that right? Did I get that right? First cousins once removed? So they're a generation separated, but they're related to each other. And we have this miraculous birth to an old couple. It's not a virgin birth, but it is a miraculous birth, like the Abraham, uh, like the Abraham and Sarah birth, like the, um, I think there's, uh, like Hannah. Um, and so there's this miraculous birth to this old couple, we read, Noah read today, what Zechariah said this man's ministry would be like. This, they, knew, they knew that he would be a prophet that would bring and introduce God's Messiah. Malachi 4.5 says that, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so John grows up, has this ministry like Elijah, and identifies Jesus as the Messiah. He publicly launches his ministry and even hands off some of his followers, as John 1.37 says. I love the spirit of John here because John has a pretty good following. John the Baptist has a pretty good following, a pretty uh, impressive ministry until Jesus comes. And then it says in John chapter 3, verses 26 through 30, 
He says, they came to John, meaning some of John's disciples, and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he, meaning Jesus, is baptizing, and all are going to him. John, you're losing your ministry to Jesus. He's becoming more popular than you. And John answered and says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. My ministry was always just a gift from God. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. I'm not the, I'm not the, I'm not the groom. God's people are for the groom. Jesus is the groom. I'm the best man. Like, I'm just pointing to the guy, right? That's kind of the imagery he uses here. I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore... This joy of mine is now complete. And he says this, he must increase, meaning Jesus, I must decrease. That's the heart of John. I come, I've gathered this big following, I have prepared God's people, and now I was just here to get the bride ready and get her to her husband. And then I'm to fade into the background. That's John's heart here. That's his ministry. That's the kind of man of integrity and character that he was. He recedes into the background and ultimately is arrested for calling out this ungodly marriage. He sometimes, interestingly, struggles to believe so all of this confidence, all of this understanding, all of this prophecy, but while he's in jail, Matthew 11 tells us this about John. He said, when John was in prison, he heard about the deeds of Jesus and sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come? <laughs> so even the great John the Baptist, sometimes in the middle of his suffering, doubted. That encourages me. That encourages me to know that even the great John the Baptist, with all of this confidence, all of this boldness, had moments of weakness where he was like, Jesus, are you really it? This is not what I thought it would be. And Jesus answered them, his disciples, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John, hang in there. You did your job. You were right. I am the Messiah, and I just want to know, want you to know that your ministry has not been in vain. Your faith is not in vain. He's in prison. Like, this is not how God's people should be treated. He's experiencing injustice for doing the right thing. He's in jail, and he's wondering if it has all been worth it or not. And Jesus sends him just this sweet reply, hey, listen, I am the Messiah. I'm doing Messiah things, and I want you to stay faithful to me, is basically the heart of his ministry. So Jesus encourages him. Even the great John the Baptist had days where his faith struggled where he had doubts, where he was depressed, where he wondered if it was really worth it. And Jesus was kind to him. So that's John the Baptist. So here we go. Third question, why is John dead? Okay, so now let's walk through our passage here. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. <clears throat> so we get this mention in Mark chapter, 14, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 14. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Okay, so Jesus might, maybe Jesus is this John the Baptist that's been raised from the dead. That was one of the rumors, is that, oh, gosh, this great prophet, everyone knew John was a great prophet. Herod killed him. Now Herod's wondering, oh, gosh, did he come back from the dead? That's not good, right? Maybe John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Maybe this is why the miraculous powers are at work in him. Verse 15, others said he's Elijah. Well, that might be worse, you know. So Herod might have this conscience thing going on. He's racked with guilt. He's not sure what to do with this. And he's just hearing about this Jesus going, oh man, is God going to get back at me? Um, 
Others say he's Elijah, and others said he's a prophet, or like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So you can just kind of feel the paranoia in Herod, right? Like, I, I know I did the right, wrong thing. I know I killed one of God's prophets. And this Jesus, maybe this is, maybe this is retribution. And we're left here thinking as we read through the Gospel of Mark, if you're reading through it for the first time, you're going, whoa, wait, John's dead? Yeah, John's dead. And so then Mark begins to tell why is he dead. He was killed by Herod. So this would be surprising if you're reading the story for the first time to go, wait, the forerunner of Jesus, the proclaimer of Jesus is dead? He gets killed? You join Jesus' team and you get killed? That doesn't seem fair at all. And so then he explains why. Why is he killed like a violent criminal? He's, he, he is killed for calling out Herod's immorality. We see that in Mark chapter 6, verse 17. So look at verse 17. And look at just like, oh, I'm going to end up crashing this thing again. It says, For it was Herod, verse 17, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. You remember that? Because he had married her. And John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That goes against the law. That is, God abhors this situation. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. See? See Herod's conscience? He's protecting John by putting him in, in jail. He also kind of wants him, but he likes hearing him preach. <clears throat> and in that sense, Herod is not so much different from his father. He's paranoid. He's conflicted. Herodias wants him dead, but her new husband has kind of this hang-up. And so she's going to have to manipulate him. She's going to have to find a way to use his insecurities... His, um, his paranoia, she's going to have to use that against him if she wants this John out of her way. She wants John dead, but her husband has a hang-up here, and so she sets a nasty trap. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 21, Herodias gets her opportunity. It says an opportunity, and literally that's what it says here, but an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Herodias is going to use these men's inhibitions, their hedonistic desires, their love for power, their mutual like self, um, their desire to kind of like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? To, to, uh, to one-up one another. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask for me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Now, does that remind you of an Old Testament story at all? Drunken party, giving up to half the kingdom, rash vow. Sounds like the book of Esther, doesn't it? Xerxes is kind of this clown king who is insecure, who uh, has this party, who wants his wife to come and dance for the nobles. She refuses, and so he deposes her. And then you get the Esther story and this half the kingdom stuff. There's a bit of a parallel here of this clown king, like this, this man with all of this power, enslaved by his desires, making rash vows, easily manipulated for evil. And here we have the same thing. This Herodias uses her own daughter. The word daughter here is the same word used of the girl who was 12 years old in the previous passage. This is probably a teenager. And you can maybe imagine a drunken party with a bunch of powerful men, what kind of dance this teenager might be doing that is pleasing these men. So Herodias is just full of evil. She wants John dead. 
She's willing to manipulate her husband in front of all of these people. And she's willing to use her teenage daughter to accomplish these ends, to put her husband in a position where he will make some sort of vow, make some sort of promise in front of his friends in this drunken state that could then create an opportunity for her to get what she wants. You see just sort of the evil that's being surrounded in this, all the politics, all of the hedonism, all the drunkenness and the manipulation using your daughter in this way. She seems to be part of it as well. And we see a parallel, really, of this Esther story. We see this clown king motif come up all the time (laughs) where these powerful kings are being confronted by God's word and they respond in all of these negative ways. Herod ultimately takes the bait. He makes a vow. He essentially issues a blank check and the trap is sprung. Verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? I, I can get up to half the kingdom here if you want. And the head of John the Baptist... And she said, the head of John the Baptist, I want John the Baptist dead. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist. Then she adds her own little sick twist on a platter. Put it on a nice plate. Let's present it at the banquet at the party, right? So so this daughter is, is part of this as well. And it's amazing how quick the response was. This, this looks premeditated. As soon as there's an opportunity to jump on it, we want John dead. And why don't we make a, make a show of it as well? Daughter added her own sick twist. Like mother, like daughter. Herod sopers up pretty quickly and now has to make a decision. He has tried to live a divided and hypocritical life and now he's going to have to pick a side. He's had some respect for John. He's tried to protect John in some way, but now it's payday. Now it's time to pick a lane. Will I follow my own hedonistic desires? Will I go the direction? Will I be willing to lose face to identify with John? Or will I silence this man? Finally, his hypocrisy has caught up to him and he has to make a decision. What really matters most to him? Verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry. Deeply convicted, racked with guilt. He, he's made a huge mistake. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. One commentator says Herodias felt that the only place where her marriage certificate could be safely written was on the back of the death warrant of John the Baptist. Maybe God's word, if I can just silence the preacher, maybe God's word will no longer apply here anymore. In this sense, Herod regarded the vows before his drunken idiot friends as more important than the marriage vows he had made before God. What matters more to him? Not the opinion of God, but the opinion of man. He doesn't want to save face before God and repent. He wants to save face before his friends, even if it costs someone their life. So Herod makes his choice. His hypocrisy is caught up with him. He's got to decide. He can't just be a hearer of the word. He either has to be a doer or a killer of the word. And Herod makes his choice. He kills John and in the process, in a sense, kills his own conscience. In the moment of decision, you're going to go God's way or you're going to go your own way. He weighs it. He feels the weightiness of it. And in the end, opts to kill John. Verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother, a trophy. Again, I mentioned this before, the clown king is tricked into an execution. 
just like Esther in that story, King Xerxes is just manipulated back and forth. Fortunately, Esther is able to kind of manipulate him for good. (laughs) But we see Pharaoh, we see Saul, King Saul, even one of Israel's kings is easily manipulated. We see this again and again, these kings that are so easily manipulated. Ahab, Nebuchadnezzar, Xerxes, and Herod. The kings of this world are a mess. And just like Elijah in 1 Kings 19 through 21, yeah, chapters 19 through 22, we get the story of Ahab and Jezebel, where Jezebel is taking Israel's king, Ahab, and pulling him towards idol worship. And Elijah keeps calling him out on it, and Jezebel wants him dead. And God continues to preserve Elijah, preserve Elijah, preserve Elijah. Now we get the new Elijah, and for some reason, God allows this Elijah to be killed by the Jezebel, the Herodias. So not only does John have a ministry like Elijah, he's sort of prefiguring Elijah. His disciples come and bury him, a foreshadowing of Jesus' own death and burial. It says in verse 29, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Herod apparently remains haunted because this episode apparently happened in the past, but now he's hearing about Jesus and he's freaked out. Maybe John the Baptist is back from the dead, like he's haunted by this, right? But not haunted into repenting. There's a difference. There's a difference. Second Corinthians talks about this, of that there's a worldly sorrow, a worldly sorrow that just feels regret, and there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. So he feels a certain regret. He's haunted by this, but he doesn't repent. He remains haunted but unrepentant, and the presence of Jesus sort of triggers this experience. Crazy story. Crazy story. So what's the point? Here's where we'll begin to land the plane. What's the point of this story? I think, for one, it's to introduce Herod Antipas to the story because he is going to play somewhat of a role in Jesus' execution and to know that he he has not been distant in this whole thing. He's been deeply involved in the ministry of John. He should know better. He has been told the truth. He should know better. The Herodian family will continue to play a role in church history. We'll see this. You, well, I showed that I showed a picture of you. Uh, that this Herod dynasty is going to continue to be um, influencing, uh, hindering, at times unexpectedly advancing <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the Jesus movement on into the book of Acts. I think it also foreshadows a bit of a political conflict that's coming. We already have seen that there's a spiritual, religious conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now I think Mark is starting to go, okay, this is now going beyond just a religious conflict within Israel. This is now moving up to where now the political leaders are beginning to take notice of this Jesus movement. And they're not like, they're not neutral on this. Herod is not neutral because he's already had a run-in with one of God's prophets. I think this, this story also tells us what happens sometimes to Jesus' ambassadors, especially his first ambassador. Jesus said of John, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, which would be, I think, everyone, right? <laughs> born of women meets everyone. There's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. There's been no one. There has been no one who has had a more significant ministry than John the Baptist because he has brought attention to the, to the Messiah. And if Jesus' first and greatest ambassador, the, the great prophet, John the Baptist, if he could get killed, then what does this mean for Jesus' other witnesses? It's sobering. It's a sober illustration of the coming experiences of all those who are going to preach Christ, that there will be opposition. 
I think he also talks here about, the, he reveals the true cost of discipleship. Remember, the context here, this Mark and Sandwich, is about going and proclaiming the good news of the gospel. That's what John was doing, and it got him killed. This is sobering. Sometimes there's success, sometimes there's death, and we think about Christians around the globe who are in persecuted places going, yeah, this is not surprising. The true cost of discipleship. Jesus is going to say this later, that if you follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me, right? It's the cost of discipleship might mean your life. I think it also shows the need for a true and better king and kingdom. Like This is the best the Romans can do. Is this man so consumed with his own desires that he isn't even thinking straight? He comes from a family that murders one another, steals each other's wives, incest. This is the kings of the world. Behold, this is what humans do when they get power. We need a new human. We need a new king. We need a better kingdom. The kingdoms of this world will not work. They do not work. Every king, every kingdom falls because of sin. We need a new king, a new kingdom. This Herodian kingship and this Herodian kingdom is a mess. We need a new and better king. And we get such a picture of Jesus' kingship to this point, right? Which is redemptive and godly and restorative. And we get the kingdom of Herod. Let's just compare the kingdom of God with the kingdom of man. The kingdoms of this world win by indulging their desires. Jesus' kingdom wins by dying to self. The kingdoms of this world win by silencing the truth. Jesus' kingdom wins by proclaiming the truth. The kingdoms of this world win by dominating their enemies. Jesus' kingdom wins by serving his enemies. The kingdoms of this world win by killing Jesus' kingdom wins by dying. And John is this forerunner of Jesus, not just in ministry, but in death. Just as John will die at the hands of Herod, so Jesus will die at the hands of Pilate. We get a glimpse of where the book is going to be headed. No pun intended. Where the book is going. This king and this kingdom is completely upside down. It's about serving, not taking. It's about dying, not killing. It's about truth, not lies. It's about integrity, not manipulation. You just get such a, such a comparison between the kingdom of Jesus to this point and the kingdoms of this world. And so as we've questioned this scripture, let's let this scripture question us. Which king will you serve? Will you bow the knee to worldly kings, politics, who will be the next president, who will, I, who will I serve? The kings of this world or the king that has come from another world? These people are literally thinking through what side am I going to be on, the Herodias side, the Herodian side, or, and, and we're going to get to the end of the book and the people are going to cry, crucify him. And they're not talking about Herod. They're going to have to make a decision. Just as Herod had to make a decision, we have to make a decision what king we're going to follow. And to follow Jesus might be to follow him into death. Which king will you serve? The kings of this world or the king from another world? Which kingdom will you choose to be a part of? The kingdoms of this world? We see Herod 
and his family sort of model what the kingdoms of this world have to offer. Power, yes, maybe, if you're on their good side, but you get on their bad side, this political power stuff corrupts. Which kingdom will you choose? Or the kingdom of Christ? Will you pay the price to speak God's truth like John? Sometimes ambassadors suffer. One commentator said, the sandwich structure here draws a connection between mission and martyrdom, discipleship and death. They're an inseparable relationship. So if we're going to follow Jesus, we just need to be, like we need, but Jesus says we need to count the cost, right? He tells the rich young ruler, go sell all you have and come follow me. Like you have to, like to follow me is not to sign up for an easy, like easy life. Edwards also says, John's martyrdom not only prefigures Jesus' death, but it also prefigures the death of anyone who would follow him. How many of Jesus' disciples, every single one of them, is going to die a violent death, except for John. And according to church history, that's just because he survived his martyrdom. He was apparently boiled in a vat of oil and just happened to, di- happened to survive. So he died without dying. That might be the worst thing, is to go through the process of dying, but not actually getting to die. Following Jesus in this way may cost you your life. If the honored forerunner faced a miserable and unjust death, then what makes us think that we're going to have it better, right? And then like Herod, will we kill our conscience or purify it? Will we become at home with our hypocrisy? Yeah, we like calling ourselves Christians, maybe going and hearing sermons every now and then, listening to Christian music, but I'm still going to hold on to my own sinful desires. At some point, payment is going to come due. At some point, we're going to hit that Herod's decision point of going, will I choose the world or will I choose the way of God? Will I continue with my kingdom or will I continue or will I turn and enter Christ's kingdom? Oh man, there's so many of us, so many out there who like the benefits of Christianity but don't want the costs, right? And Herod has tried to live in these two worlds, respecting God's prophet but not listening and obeying him. And at some point, he had to pick a side. And every, wing, every one of us has to, at some point, come to that point where we look at Jesus and we have to decide, will I bow the knee to him or will I reject him? What is your conscience saying to you right now? Is it racked with guilt over your hypocrisy? If so, repent. I can imagine that if we were to talk to John, John would say that it was worth it. To live and to suffer in all these ways and die a miserable, unjust death It was worth it for Jesus. And if we were able to talk to Herod right now, he would say all of the stuff the world had to offer me wasn't worth it, right? I mean, if we were able to bring those two men from whatever eternal place that they're in right now, I think we can guess, and say, was it worth it, Herod? He'd say, no, I should have listened. I should have turned. I had my opportunity, and I chose the world. I chose myself. And John, who lost everything in this world, would say, I stuck with Jesus to the end, and I do not regret it. And we have that same decision at some point in our lives, maybe even now, to decide, I've heard the truth. Will I repent of my sin? Or will I reject the message and the messenger? Let's bow our heads and let's pray. God, what a crazy story. Um, Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. um, That we will not walk out of here not knowing um, the truth. That we can either have it our way or we can turn to you. God, we pray that you would help us to learn from this sobering lesson.
uh, we thank you that, um, that you have warned us today and that you have given us an opportunity uh, to see what a difference it is between the world's kingdom and your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that we would soberly think through the areas of our life where there's hypocrisy, where our conscience is bothering you. And I pray, God, that whatever it costs, we would turn and bow the knee to Jesus, that we would submit ourselves to your word and your ways, that we would not just be satisfied with hearing sermons sometimes, um, but then living our own way. God, we pray that you would help us to hear your word and submit to it. And Lord, help us not to kill our consciences, not to um, to turn away from the word when we have an opportunity to repent and believe. I pray that we would seize it. And even if it costs us our life to walk in your light, walk in a right relationship with Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.